Genesis 47, and I'll just read uh, verses 11 to 26, reading in God's holy and infallible word, written for our edification and his glory. And Joseph situated his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. Then Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with bread, according to the number in their families. Now there was no bread in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan for the grain that which they bought, and Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. So when the money failed in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us bread, for why should we die in your presence? For the money has failed. Then Joseph said, Give your livestock, and I will give you bread for your livestock, if the money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them bread in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the cattle of the herds, and for the donkeys. Thus he fed them with bread in exchange for all their livestock that year. When that year had ended, they came to him the next year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is gone. My Lord also has our herds and livestock. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our lands. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for bread, and we and our land will be servants of Pharaoh. Give us seed that we may live and not die, that the land may not be desolate. Then Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for every man of the Egyptians sold his field because the famine was severe upon them. So the land became Pharaoh's. And as for the people, he moved them into the cities from one end of the borders of Egypt to the other end. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had rations allotted to them by Pharaoh, and they ate their rations, which Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their lands. Then Joseph said to the people, Indeed, I have bought you and your land this day for Pharaoh. Look, here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And it shall come to pass in the harvest that you shall give one-fifth to Pharaoh. Four-fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field and for your food, for those of your households, and as food for your little ones. So they said, You have saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's servants. And Joseph made it a law over the land of Egypt to this day that Pharaoh should have one-fifth, except for the land of the priests only, which did not become Pharaoh's. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your preserved word. Uh, may you guide us today in understanding it and having it sink into our hearts that we may live it, that we would not merely be hearers, but also doers. Please do guide us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here in this portion of chapter 47, we've finally come to what Moses has been building up to for a long while, chapters and chapters, in a sense. That is the severe famine that gripped Egypt and the surrounding regions and its consequences, the consequences in the lives of the Egyptians and the Canaanites, as well as for God's people. Moses prepared us for it by telling of Joseph's ability to interpret Pharaoh's dreams. Remember, that's where it was foreshadowed. Uh, making it the driving force for Joseph's brothers to come down to Egypt looking for grain. Then the whole impetus of his family, extended family, coming down to Egypt to survive. The emphasis, recall from previous sermons over and over again, emphasizing that they'd be planted in that good land. And that is all in order to be able to weather this event, to make it through this super severe famine. So the Holy Spirit, speaking through Moses, who recorded this history for us, wants us 
to be certain of a few things. And as I meditate on this passage and really pleaded, asking God, what can we pull from this that would be both instructive, just for a universal lesson and explaining what the text is, and a useful application for us as we go forth to live out his word. The Holy Spirit speaking to us, telling us that there is a difference between God's people and the rest of the world. Praise the Lord, he does not treat us all the same. Praise be to God that he does not treat us as he treats the heathen. So in the history here of the famine in Egypt, first we see his provision for Israel, and then contrasted with that, the bulk of these verses I just read depicts, the word I'll prick here is the desperate, the desperate condition of the heathen. Indeed, they will do anything, they will give nearly everything to save their lives. And through this text, I encourage you, you in listening to it now, reflecting on the passage later, to be asking yourself questions such as, you know, what is God doing here? Uh, how am I regarded? How am I living out things differently than those around me? Uh, why is he doing things this way for his people and doing these other things a different way for the heathen? How would I or how should I respond in these situations? So I see the key point is the fact that God deals differently with his people and his people need to be different in how we live our lives. Amen? So let's see some detail of that. We'll begin, as you can see in the outlines are provided for you, with the fact of the comfortable condition of the Israelites, that is Jacob and his family. And that's reading again verses 11 and 12. And Joseph situated his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. Then Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with bread, according to the number in their families. So this is a very positive picture, right? It jumps right into the next verse using the contrasting word, now there was no bread at all in the land. And if you, uh, I won't jump into next time I preach, but in verse 27, so the next verse after this section, it speaks of the bounty of the possessions and the great abundance, the population that the Israelites had grown into. So there's this contrast that I'm wanting to paint for us. In just two verses, and then the next verse to the next section, we get the idea things are going great for the Egyptians or for the uh, Israelites, right? Joseph has put them in a good place. They're taken care of. He's giving them bread. It's all good. And that's contrasted with, as we'll get into shortly, what happens with the Egyptians. But a little more detail, I want to draw out three things that we see in these few verses explaining the overall very positive condition of the Israelites. And first is that Joseph is the agent of God's care. He's caring for them, God is, but Joseph is the agent of God's care. Uh, just think back and reflect on you know, hundreds of incidents of God interacting and taking care of his people throughout redemptive history, we see that sometimes the Lord does act directly. You can think of his judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah and very sovereignly directly pulling out a few survivors there, or him very directly with his hand holding back the waters of the Red Sea so that Moses and those saved with him could exit. Uh, other times, uh, God's care is seen in his acts of providence. Uh, in the life of Joseph, even, we can see examples of this. There happened to be a pit nearby when the brothers attacked him and decided not to kill him immediately. Let's just toss him in the pit. Whoa, hey, here's a pit. That's handy. 
uh, other acts of providence you can think of also. Other times, and here, we see him acting through agents. That is, a person he stirs up the heart of and directs the actions of to be his agent of care for the party he's trying to exert care to. So in these verses, notice the person who is active. Joseph situated his father and his brothers. Joseph gave them a possession. Joseph provided them with bread. Certainly, as I prefaced it, looking at the big picture, it's God who is caring for his people, but the agent of that care, the way God is carrying out that care for his people is through Joseph. I know this seems obvious. People are often saying to me, good sermon, Michael. That was very simple. And I take that as a compliment, not trying to be complicated. It is remarkably simple that God works through people to care for others. And here that person is Joseph. Big picture is that the Lord's caring for his people, but the local picture is that Joseph is the agent of that care as God accomplishes his ends through people. Secondly, a little bit about the nature of Joseph's actions as the agent of God's care, the fact that he is active. He's not passive. He's not just sitting back, maybe abdicating or being lax about the responsibility that the Lord has given him, but that Joseph is active in extending his care. A moment ago, I emphasized the three actions happening by way of the person doing them. That was Joseph, but now the mere fact that they are actions that Joseph did. He, Joseph, situated them. He gave to them the provisions. He provided for them. Those three active verbs. It's so simple in the grammar. They're an active, a, a causative. He is causing something to come to pass on behalf of his family, the people of God. God nor Joseph was just sitting back, waiting for things to happen, being relaxed, thinking, hey, I've got my special quarters in the palace. Let's just let the people live off there and see how things go. No, that is not how Joseph regarded this incident or his responsibilities. As a good steward, Joseph knew the work he was called to do, and he was diligent and careful in bringing it about. Third facet of this is that uh, Regarding the comfortable, remember I want to emphasize the comfortable condition by way of comparison that the people of Israel were in, is that the Lord provided for them through Joseph and that care left no one out. His care reaches as far as it is needed. No one that God desired to care for and that Joseph was responsible to care for was left out. Uh, we see that in the last clause of verse 12, according to the number in their families. This is if you count, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Okay, we do it for ten people. So he has been specific and careful in knowing who it is that needs to be cared for. And in that passage there, it says that he did it. Everyone who needed care received that care. And you can think of a similar uh, uh, arrangement in the... Uh, carrying out of the Passover. Each family was instructed to have enough provisions on hand for the number of people that would partake. You think of the pastors here and the deacons who set out the Lord's table. They know about, you know, there might be some visitors, there can be little surprises, but they've taken care to have those provisions available for all those who would need them. And so that's the point here. Joseph, give, tasked with God by, by God with the responsibility of caring for God's people, knows who that is and is careful to have his care extend to all those who need it. So just as the Father, just as God cares for those he knows, Joseph was careful to do the same. All in the household were provided with bread 
none were left out. So this paints for us a beautiful picture of God's care for his people. Uh, they may be a long way from home. Uh, they may be under some stress and getting settled into a new land. But the Lord surely, without a doubt, without an exception, provided for their needs through the oversight of Joseph. So very simply, not to belabor it, because certainly the Holy Spirit doesn't either. He only gives two verses to this. Very simply said, that is the comfortable condition of Israel. Joseph's fathers and brothers and all his father's household were comfortable. Joseph was God's man, and he was active in taking care of all of them. When we move along, we see a very different story for the others. Uh, the others, the neighbors, really the hosts. Remember, Israelites have come into Israel, uh, Egypt uh, to spend a time there to be safe from the famine. And we see now what happens to the others nearby who are subjected to this famine. What is the condition of the Egyptians? We see some striking contrasts, uh, a few similarities I want to draw out, but some striking dissimilarities as to how God acts differently with other people. So let's see what we find here. First, we'll note that Egypt is not alone in suffering the effects of the famine. They're not alone in terms of the uh, subgroups of the other. So we've got the Israelites and we've got the other. I'll term it later as God's people and the world, or the Israelites and the Egyptians. But it is intriguing to me that the divine author here twice, and it may have caught your attention too, in verses 14 and 15, mentions not just Egypt and the Egyptians, but the Canaanites. And uh, we could ask why. It's in verse 14, the land, or verse 13, the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. In verse 15, the money failed in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan. So Moses is, is still adding on this thing. It's, it's almost like, well, so who, who cares at this point about the people in Canaan? We're not in Canaan anymore. We're in Egypt. Our neighbors are the Egyptians. Uh, could be, and I think we can make five or six point list as to why Moses might have mentioned this, but I believe a primary reason would be in order to answer the reader's concern about the Israelites leaving the promised land. My, one might say, well, shouldn't we have stayed back there? And so Moses is saying, just so you know, this is how it's going in the place you left. It's no better. It's just as bad. Back in Canaan, it's just as bad. Thus, there was no out. There's no escaping. There's no proverbial grass is greener on the other side of the fence. Remember later in, in history, when Moses does lead the people out and they run into some difficulties on their journey after they've escaped, and what is their first thinking? Oh, it was so great back in Egypt. Let's go back there. So Moses, before that problem arose, uh, is telling the story, uh, recording the story, how God informed them, no, it's not better in that other place. You have it okay, or it's not good here for the uh, Egyptians, and it wouldn't be good over there either. No need to be jealous. There was no out. Uh, perhaps it also serves as an example of the old adage, misery loves company, right? The Egyptians had it bad, they're looking around, well, at least the Canaanites have it bad too. No need to be jealous. So the Canaanites, uh, the Egyptians, all the peoples of that region were in this together. A very desperate state of events indeed. Secondly, and this will cover a bunch of verses, what I've written there in your outlines as the steps of independence. Uh, and I wrote that uh, with those brackets to show that their independence 
transforms and heads down the road towards a dependence, and we'll see how that progression happens. So as we look at the desperate condition of the heathen, and understand again that that's contrasted with the comfortable condition of God's people, we look at the desperate condition of the heathen, specifically the Egyptians, we see the progression or the steps in their dependence. Uh, normally, as is natural and as good and responsible, they trusted in their own food stores, right? They trusted in what they had in the proverbial pantry, in the cellar, out in the barn. But we're quickly told here that that ran out. What did they turn to next? As would make sense, their financial resources, the money they had, their wealth, in order to buy bread. After that ran out, what do they turn to? Their other assets to sell. Finally, they were left with nothing but themselves to be sold into servitude. So to look at those steps. The first one, self-provision, is what happened in normal years. But verse 13 informs us that the normal had changed. Life was no longer normal. They'd run out of bread. Uh, verse 14 indicates that the people had to buy grain, and who was there to go to to buy it from but Joseph. So they spent, as it turns out, all of their financial resources. They had nothing left. But that's all they could do as uh, really, well, it's not all, because in the next couple of verses, they get to the last things. So the, the penultimate all that they could do was to spend all their money on the bread. And verse 15 explains what they could do after that was spent. The money ran out. Joseph proposed to trade their livestock for bread. And when that was all gone, all they had was, as verse eight, yes, 18 finally words it, all we have is our bodies and our lands. Well, they lost that too. Uh, they lost the land because they sold it. Actually, did I, I might have missaid that. They sold their uh, livestock and then their land. Make sure I clarify that. So they ultimately lost their land too and ultimately lost their bodies as well. Uh, they were moved off their land, as it explains here. They were moved into the cities as the government took over ownership of the land, though they did offer the people to plant it later because recall he's uh, giving them seed in order to plant for future harvests and then taking a percentage of that. Uh, but they lost the ownership, the right to do whatever they wanted with their land, giving some responsibility back in order to manage it. Uh, but ultimately, they lose their bodies too, right? They basically offer themselves into servitude. They become Pharaoh's servants. And as a permanent regulation, one-fifth of the proceeds of their labor, and that's really you own yourself in that you own your labor, right? And so they lost the ownership of their labor. They're obligated to give a percentage of that labor uh, forever, in a sense, to the government. But given the severe situation at the time, the people didn't complain. You'd think, wow, that is really harsh. Look what they had to give up. They lost everything. They even lost themselves. But they didn't complain. They were very appreciative. They were thankful. After all, they were alive. And for the heathen, the self-preservation, I think, is the highest goal. They'd lost everything else. They'd lost fortunes, they'd lost lands, they'd lost their freedom, but at least, in their eyes, at least they didn't starve to death, which really shows what their priorities are. So at this point, I want us to take a step back, having painted for you that picture uh, briefly of the comfortable condition of the Israelites, a little more detail as the text shows us the desperate condition of the Egyptians. To see that contrast, uh, to see the contrast between God's people and the world. On the surface of it, the difference is simply material, right? We can see, oh wow, who's doing well? Who's got you know, the nice green lawn? And who doesn't? Whose yard's full of weeds because they don't have any money for the sprinkler? 
So we see those contrasts, and on the surface, it's material. Uh, the Israelites were hanging out in the comfortable land of Goshen. Uh, the bread came for free from the king's storehouses, right? At the beginning there, it says that Joseph was giving them bread, and uh, they didn't have to sell everything they had in order to get it because they had a special connection with the one who managed Pharaoh's uh, storehouses. So in Goshen, everything's good, whereas the Egyptians were in a very critical situation. They were in the process of and ultimately lost everything. Yet the material differences at this point in the story also point to some similarities, I believe. In coming to Egypt, the Israelites lost their land, right? They didn't lose it permanently. God had still promised it to them, and they would come back to it. But in migrating down to Egypt, they lost that right now I'm looking out at the sunset over Canaan type of responsibility for that land. So I see some similarity there between the experience of the Israelites and this current reality of the Egyptians who were removed from their land. Also, the Israelites lost some of their goods. Uh, they likely left at least some of their goods back in Canaan. Uh, in the instructions given by Pharaoh to Joseph, when Joseph says, oh, my brothers are here, and he says, oh, you should go back, go get them, bring them all down. He specifically, this is Pharaoh, told Joseph, I'll send these carts with you. Don't worry about them bringing their goods, just you know, bring the people and I'll take care of them here. Well, next chapter when it's explaining Joseph and, or Jacob's family coming, it, it does say they brought their goods. Whether they brought all of their goods, they brought the expensive goods or the convenient goods, uh, we can, I think, understand that they probably didn't bring everything. He didn't need to bring everything, again, because Pharaoh, through Joseph, and as we see it here happening, had promised to take care of them. So all that to say, the Egyptians lost their land, absolutely. Had to sell it, moved off of it. Israelites left their land behind and thankfully would come back to it later. The Israelites, in leaving Canaan, likely left some of their stuff behind. And the uh, Egyptians, in a very thorough sense, lost all of their goods in this disaster. So those are the similarities. While God's people were not reduced to utter poverty like the Egyptians were, they did suffer, or some changes at least, right? Life was not the same. But even the degree of similarities shows the significance of the differences, the major differences that I've outlined. But going beyond those material differences, the degree of the poverty, the degree to which this famine impacted them daily, or you know, thrice, thrice daily in terms of their food, I see their attitude. Uh, how did they respond to this situation? And as I've worded it even, I've. Uh, already revealed, the desperation, the desperation of the heathen, the desperation of the Egyptians. That's what jumps out at me. They will do everything they can to survive. The world is falling apart around them. We're dying, they're thinking. You know, there's no hope. There's nothing that we can do. What are we going to do? Help us, is their cry. We have nothing left. Indeed, they would, would do anything to avoid death and to sustain their bodies in some meager existence. And ultimately, that's what they're happy with at the end, is at least we didn't die. At least we have our bodies and we have our lives. And that is in stark contrast with at least what should be the attitude of God's people. Admittedly, at times, that sentiment of desperation does creep in. I don't want to promise anybody that, you know, committing your, Lord, your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, you're never going to have desperate moments. It's all going to be smiles and, and ice cream. No. 
There are desperate moments, uh, whether in the reality of interacting with a fallen world or in the reality of our fallenness personally and weak moments. And we can recall Jacob's utter despair when he was informed of what he thought was Joseph's death at the hands of the wild beasts. The text says, this is Genesis 37, he refused to be comforted. So that is a despair. That is a desperate response. But in moments of wisdom, there is hope because we know that this life is not all there is, right? We don't have to cling so tightly to this life because we know there is more. So in that regard, uh, we can think of David's statement upon the death of his first child by Bathsheba, where he said, this is in 2 Samuel 12, he said, I shall go to him, right? And the response there is, well, yes, this is sad. Child died, this is related to my sin, but there is hope. I will see this child again in the future in the eternal life. So that brings us, I believe, to the truly critical difference between the Israelites and the Egyptians. Hope. I thought of summarizing this whole sermon, just putting it at the top of your outline, hope. But then I would have given it all away at the beginning, right? So we come now, though, to that critical difference. What is it that makes it so that God's people are comfortable, even in difficult situations, and the heathen are desperate, kind of, except when things are going the best they can? And it's the fact that the Egyptians placed their hope where? In their barns, in their refrigerators, is what it would be today for us, in their pocketbooks. When those had run dry, they were desperate for something, for anything that would sustain them and continue their lives. Because as they saw it, that's all they had, right? Suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, they didn't want to think of the future, of what happens after the grave. They would do anything they could to continue their lives now. Their lives are the be-all, the end-all, the, the altar upon which all would be sacrificed in order to continue it. They wanted the status quo. They wanted to hold on to their bodies because the things of this life, indeed their very lives, were all that they had. That was their idol. They did not want to face a future after death because they had no hope. Uh, addressing this, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 describes the condition of the person who is unsaved. He says, being without Christ, they are aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Uh, when he wrote to the Thessalonians, he encouraged them to have a different attitude. He said, but I do not want you to be ignorant concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. So both these texts, and we could pick others as well, the, the life apart from Christ is hopeless. And it's important for everybody to realize this, right? We need to realize this as it helps us to hone in on what is a godly life and a godly perspective here and for the future. And those need to be the words that we can share with our neighbors. They truly have no hope. They may think they do. They have the hope because they got money, they've got a job, they've got other things that they value, but what happens when world events take those things away, right? What is your hope then? So to ask you this critical question, what is it that distinguishes God's people from the world? One word. Well, a variety of one words. Christ distinguishes, right? But here in terms of our application, one word, hope. The hope we have in Christ. So they're connected. The Egyptians were hopeless because their sights were limited to this life. The harvest uh, tonight's dinner, things like that. That's not how it is for Jacob's family or for God's people of any generation. We do not live as a people whose lives are focused on our bellies. 
we live as a people focused on the future, uh, both the future of you know, tomorrow, next week, 10 years, the type of earthly planning, which good stewards do to be careful with our resources, but also we're focused in hope on the future that is eternity. The hope that Paul urged the people of Ephesus and Thessalonica and also is urging us onto was the sure knowledge that we can be reconciled to the holy God who made us and sustains us and who controls everything around us. Our hope is that this present life is not all there is. And through the atonement of Jesus, we have a blessed future. So it's no wonder and we might look at the Egyptians and be like, Whoa, why are they so desperate? It's just kind of crazy, irrational. No, it's actually perfectly rational, given where they were at. Some of our neighbors out there, people we read about in the news, if we don't know them personally, who are reacting in extreme ways to current crises, we might think, wow, that's just like out there. It's kind of crazy. Relax. Well, according to their worldview and according to their destiny, there is great fear. And it makes sense. It is rational in that way. And uh, people in various religious systems come up with all sorts of systems to try to manage that fear, uh, whether it's coming up with reincarnation, and a variation of that was uh, present in the Egyptians' day of ancient Egypt, or whether it's in you know, the modern humanist sense of just mere decomposition, you know, bury us and we go away, go back to Mother Earth. These are just ways that people come up with to try and tamp down that conscience that says to them, whoa, whoa, this is scary, you got to deal with this. They want to not have to worry about it. And it still boils up. They still have this fear. In the normal pattern of life, they might get away with it. They might be able to manage it. But when crises comes, they can't. It goes beyond them. It drives them to fear. At times uh, that normal life is interrupted, uh, we can be humbled, uh, realizing that maybe we've gotten a little off track. We've lost our emphasis. We've drifted from the center line of the road. And it's all the more extreme for them, but a good reminder for us. Because desperate circumstances, such as this epic famine, are opportunities. And I want us to embrace them as opportunities from the hand of God. Opportunities for us to stop, for us to think, for us to consider that life, this present life, is not all there is. Because in the end, the Egyptians were desperate. They were desperate for the wrong thing. They were desperate for temporal life because that's all they valued. So I challenge you, as the people of God, to be desperate for the right thing, right? It's good to be desperate, to be hungry, to be striving, to cast off everything for what's really important. Do you, do we, do I included with you, truly value the true important things more than food, more than shelter, more than the things we may wear? If we do, then our priorities and our actions and our attitudes should reflect it. So may the world see that we are different. May they see our hope, and in seeing it, be drawn to the one who gives us hope, indeed the one who is our hope, the hope of Israel. That's the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Amen. Father in heaven, we are truly blessed that you have extended your grace through your beloved son Jesus to draw us to you, uh, to bring us into your family, that we would no longer be aliens from you and without hope, but that we would have sure hope as we've been united to the one that is hope.
So I pray that in these present times or in whatever good and easy times that would come in the future, you would not allow us to be distracted, that we would certainly not grow desperate in a worldly way, but day by day, whether rain or sun, that we would be desperate to be in your presence, desperate to know you, to know you better day by day, never being satisfied with where we were yesterday, but striving and seeking to grow in the upward calling of Christ. I pray this on behalf of your people, in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.